A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the football podcast from The Times, where Premier League fans can get every goal, every game, everywhere, except during the Saturday-mandated blackout period of 2.45 to 5.15 p.m., which is not a UEFA rule. It's a Premier League rule, English rule, whatever it is. Do not blame UEFA for it. Hi, I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and this week I'm joined by three of the most jingoistic England lovers in journalism. A Yorkshireman who has a weird fetish for Uruguay, a man with a South London accent who played for the Republic of Ireland, and, well, a Scot. <laughs> I apologize. It seems entirely incongruous we couldn't find an England fan uh, to come on this show where we talk about England. But, hey, who says we're not objective at all times? All right, let's get started. England and Moldova, since I am clearly the biggest England fan here. No surprises, right, Johnny? No, not really. I mean, Moldova, I I was trying to think if I've seen a worse international team play against England at Wembley, apart from, you know, your obvious Andorras and San Marinos, and I don't think I have, because, I mean, Moldova, you know, when when you're a small team, you might expect to, at the very least, compete in some way physically. They weren't, you know, they weren't that. They didn't have... You know the one sort of half decent player that that a small country sometimes does. They they just had nothing. So, you know, it's very easy game for England. Um, they appeared to play quite well, England, but it was hard to to know given the opposition. Four 0 was probably past the course. What you know, if you're like one of those teams where sort of, okay, you know, you hope for the miracle, and then it'll be like eight games or ten games in the group, and after four or five games, you kind of know that you're not going to qualify. Does your mentality change? Do you as a manager okay. start calling different people in? Do you say, look, let's just try to play properly rather than win? Do you know what I'm saying? Is yeah. I, I, maybe I'm giving Moldova an out here. Mm. Um, well, what's pretty clear and what's happened with Ireland in the last few days is that Trap now is the whole of Ireland is, is accepted he's going. And I've been part of a campaign. I first started with Ireland in the early 80s and we had Owen Hand. And uh, we had three games to go and we lost 4-1 at home to Denmark. And it was just the way it was. He would be leaving the post. And now it was like, oh, we pick up the pieces. The players are left now. We've got to put in a performance because we've, you know, we've not been good enough. And in some ways, it was a, quite a relief. Liberating? But, um, yeah, liberating. We found, you know, the players went out and had to 
prove ourselves as as players and men that we could unite and get something extra out of the team. And I've I've been part of that. But it's very very difficult, Gab, because there is a. I know what the feeling would be with Ireland players this week after they lost on Friday. It'd be like get us back to England and get us back to our clubs and let's get away. Try and do a performance in Austria. Um, it's a real tricky one because you know you're only going to get flack and the flack just doesn't stop coming. And you can magnify that if it was England. Think of when England have had a bad time. It's magnified yeah. ten times. Can, can I, you clarify say that, that about the flack though? Sorry. People do care. Like just because Oh, absolutely, Gab. Yeah, I don't, it's not a case mm. of don't caring. In no, 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 but I'm saying like the media and stuff, like mm. when you've been bad for a long time, like they don't just sit there and wait for the cycle to finish. They just keep criticising and criticising. <laughs> yeah. Is that what happens? Well, you know Eamon Dunphy, don't you? What? <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> Eamon's not stopped for 25 years. But I, I, I'd have said that Ireland and, and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland are kind of on a different a different level to teams like Moldova because, yeah, they're not, they're not going to qualify. Yeah, even Scotland. But I, I say that as someone who supports Scotland and Uruguay. Um, no, I would have said that the Scots and the Welsh will start the qualification campaign sort of thinking, as you say, if we get if we get a couple of good results, if we get an easy draw, if whoever the best side in our group aren't up to it, they'll start thinking maybe maybe we could do it, and it'll take them five or six games, or in Scotland's case about three, to work out that they can't qualify. And at that point, you do get the, the experimental sides come in, and the, the, maybe the, the the energy levels drop. Teams like Moldova, I find really interesting, because we we have this debate about whether they should be allowed to be in qualification. Has anyone asked them? what it's like for them. Does that, that must be pretty disheartening for the Moldovans. I, I think the smaller nations should be in the qualifying stages. I don't see that you should have a two-tier kind of system. But it, it must get pretty tough for Moldova, knowing that it's all kind of meaningless. See, there's a, there's a little moment in the press conference after the England game where the Moldovan coach so very solemnly said, oh, well, you know, England played well, but we made mistakes for at least three of the goals. And at that point, I thought, you know, actually, that fella's going to go back and try and work on a few things and maybe they do care and you know I can sort of see this other side of it for just one moment but I also thought well where does he start well with the goalkeeper he drops the goalkeeper yeah. that's where he starts because <laughs> I, I was at I just said to Cass I was at the um, the under 21s on Thursday night when England played Moldova as well and the, I don't know whether it was on purpose or whether it was kind of happenstance the Moldovan under 21s keeper was brilliant he made mm. four or five properly top class saves it, that may have been a, a fluke or it may have been bad finishing, but I'm, I'm fairly sure that Namastro, has, his international career, should really be just about at an end. From somebody whose career, Rory has decreed, should be at an end, even though this guy is a professional, makes a living off it, and might even have a family. His international career, I, I don't um, mind him playing for Dacia Chisinau. All right. And uh, somebody who's, uh, uh, whose international career has reached 100 caps, Frank Lampard. Now, he, he's one, obviously, of a group of England players of this generation that reached 100 caps, and I was struck by this, John. I'm going to put it to you. Most of the world looks at that group of players and they say, these guys were exceptionally good. And people, I think, will talk about Lampard and Gerrard and, uh, and Ashley Cole in those terms as being ridiculously good players, far better than any England players, you know, from, or maybe not all of them far better than any England players from the 90s and 80s. But frankly, you know, you see the 80s, you say, give me Robson Hoddle. In the 90s, you give me Paul Ince. I give you Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard. Match yeah. that. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you another couple. You know, I mean, the, the worst squandering of talent I think I've seen from England was the, the period when Paul Scholes was still around as well. And yeah, he was pretty good too, wasn't he? He was all right, wasn't he? And, and, and you know, Beckham was, whether we think Ooh. he was as good as people, you know, blah, blah, blah. He was a decent player, wasn't he? But when they had the four of them, um, it still didn't work. And maybe that's where the whole muddled thinking of English football comes out because 
to not get four players like that functioning somehow in a midfield was, was criminal. But, of course, the problem is trying to play them all at the same time and just stringing four central midfielders out in a line and not thinking anything more imaginative to do, whether it was, you know, three in midfield with the goals yeah. in a different position. Okay, I sense, whatever, a, but. I sense a rant coming on. <laughs> uh, do you, remember, you guys remember when, when Ericsson decided to try and play them in a diamond? And I had to pick up the freaking English media, which I am a part of, uh, sadly. People are like, what is this? What is this diamond formation? No, 442. What is this weird, exotic diamond formation? And I thought to myself, why don't you learn your own history? 1966. Yeah. Yep. What, what was England's formation then? 424. Okay, fancy pants. It was, it was Nobby Styles sitting in front of the back four. It was the wingless wonders. It yeah. was a diamond. It was exactly. It was a 4222. Okay, thank you. The 4222 is a weirdo South American invention. But yes, you can call it what you like, but it was essentially a diamond. And you could have done that with these players. And it wasn't so weird and foreign. If it wasn't for the fact that you had the dark ages of football and journalism in this country in the 1980s, which pushed everybody to forget all the good things that had happened in this country, and you guys did invent the game. I keep saying you guys, but hey, look, it's an Irishman and a Scot, and whatever. Well, um, the, other, the other crazy thing with that, Gab, is, you know, England had just had Hoddle and Venables. Now, they weren't, they weren't flat 4-4-2 exactly. men. You know, but it, it was as if that wasn't observed. One bit. I mean, Hoddle, I thought, had a great midfield, but he had he had Anderton and, and McManaman as his wide players, and they, they didn't they didn't play as winners, did they? But it, that just seemed to pass a, a lot of people by. And certainly, when Sven came back and went back to to his, his sort of four four two, it just became all about that again. Do you think? Do you not think that the, the whole problem with with Stoll's Gerard Lampard and and kind of to a lesser extent Beckham, because you could play Beckham as a right winner, and it's not like he was bad as a right winner, is that? We've always had, in this, in this country, these septed aisles, so I can say we rather than they, referring to the English. Yeah. Kind of see it as being, the, as an international team, as you get your 11 best players yeah. and you put them on the pitch. Mm. That's not how it works. An international team has to be the, the best team. So if you, you look at Italy in 2006, they won that World Cup because they decided that you couldn't play Totti and Del Piero together. So they played one of them and lo and behold it worked. Whereas before that, they tried to play both of them all, uh, at all times or do that weird combination thing. See, as much as, as good as they were, and they're all very, very good indiv- individuals, I wouldn't say any of them are blissfully quick. You know, if you look at them as wide men at Beckham, he wasn't a guy that was going to blissfully quick like a Walcott would do and make a huge difference. They had, they had huge qualities. But I did feel at certain times that that midfield would be quite ponderous at times. And if you were going to play Lampard and Skulls, neither of them. Gerard's quick enough, but the two of them was never. Fantastic technically. There's no doubt. But England never, for that period, had anybody on the left side, did they? No. The no. whole problem. How many times did us guys talk about the left side of England's midfield? For, for but people? that was only no a problem way. because we were, we, just, we were rooted to 4 4 2. If you, well, if you play a different formation, exactly. that's not an issue. And also because you, 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 out of all those guys, you only had only one of those people was even remotely two footed. And, mm. you know, and, and that goes into coaching and so on. I guess. I guess what I, what I feel kind of bad of is somebody who's, who's not English and frankly could care less is that I kind of grew up with these people like Lampard and, and, and Jared. Lampard was my neighbour for a while, in fact. You earned too much money if Frank he's, Lampard was your neighbour. He's a silver spoon kid. I know, I know. Yeah. All right. Anyway, we had the same local. <laughs> the, 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 point, the, point I, the point I'm making here is that I think it's a combination of horrible FA and – Again, I don't want to be in the media. We're part of it. Everybody's got different ideas. Goodness knows we all have wrong opinions. But some of this absolute garbage. And, and I look at it also in terms of 
how far we've come. You remember when Sir Alex signed, and you remember this, Johnny, when Sir Alex signed Varane yeah. and, and he started messing around and he played like the one plus one up front. Yeah. And, you know, all these people, why isn't he playing 4-4-2, 4-4-2? I think there was one game where at Old Trafford, the whole crowd started chanting 4-4-2, like it was some kind of mystical yeah. thing. I remember I had the privilege of talking to Sir Alex and he mentioned some Scottish obscenities and then he said... <laughs> I've never played 4-4-2 in right. my life. I've always played 1 plus 1. And yous in the media are so thick that you never realized it. Gab, you know, it's music to my ears because I watched the Aberdeen team where on the right side of midfield there was Gordon Strachan. He was, he was Aberdeen's playmaker, but he was stationed wide, came in, nobody picked him up. Um, they had two runners in midfield and then they had a left winger. It was, it was, <laughs> it was a ve- and, and, and it was 1 plus 1 up front. It was a very... Joey Harper. Well, Joey Harper was... Just before the great team, but yeah, he was he was he was Joey Harper, Stevie Archibald was your first one plus one, and then it was Eric Black, Mark McGee, and this was this was sort of proper um, sort of forward-looking tactics, and and I just think looking at, uh, with the Lampard and Gerrard thing, everyone's talking about they can't play together. I mean, they couldn't play together as two central midfielders, but you know it was only in the last couple of years. England thought of trying them in a three, and lo and behold, it looks okay. Yeah, and, and, the, the, and the, the one thing I would say on that is that th- this big debate, are you trying to get Lampard and Gerrard into the same team and Strolls and all that, if you took them now, say the Strolls of two, yeah. t- say two years ago, the Strolls yeah. kind of towards the tail end of his career, with Gerrard of this season, who's sitting much deeper, who's playing a much more controlled kind of mm. game, you could play them two as the, as the sitting two and Lampard further forward, and you would have a very, very good midfield. Okay. I actually put the Lampard Jared point in there as a joke. It was a reference to our former colleague, Paddy Barkley, who you know, uh, often talked about it. And I thought it was weird that we're having Lampard Jared debates like 12 years after they first played together. But Cass, you, you made a point. Jared at center half, you write about it in, in the paper. Yeah. You've got a little soapbox to tell us why it's a good idea, and then. Smith and Northcroft can tell you how right you are or how wrong you are. Um, well, I've always felt, and it, over the last probably five years, that there's been a certain number of midfielders, and I've watched. I mean, even going back to '99 when I watched Luther Mateus, who I played against as uh, as a midfielder, and he he played centre half for Bayern in the Champions League final. And I've seen quite a number of midfielders. There's in a back three, though. Yeah, but still in a, a back line. But I I, I mean, Steve, Stephen's capable of playing anywhere. You know, he's that good. And he's also got a defensive quality as a midfielder. Very few teams play two up front. We'll go with that. They'll, they'll have a playmaker and leave mm-hmm. one. So he's not going to be, you know, expected to do what Michael Carrick had to do against Fellaini when Everton played Man United. You remember when Everton kept going from forward last year and frying the ball down. He's not going to be expected. I think his ability on the ball to see things early in a position like Gerald Piquet has done for Barcelona, he does it brilliantly. He hits early balls to people so often that I just feel that he's nearly played as a centre-half in some structure against Moldova. The other day he was sitting in front of the back four picking up everything. I just think in the game there was an absolute place for me for Stephen to be able to do that job and do it comfortably he's got he's a quick he's, a, he's got great stride I mean the Champions League final against AC Milan where he played as a fullback he was so good as a fullback yeah. you you came away thinking this kid can play absolutely anyway and I just nine years ago but no yeah. but he's still quick enough Gab. Yeah. No, no. you know he's got he's got defensive qualities as well and I think the biggest thing for me is he sees things so early that he splits defences and, and wide men would appreciate it and midfielders would have too because he gives it to them so quickly. And I think it's a position he could easily play for England. Yeah, I, I mean, my concern would be if he doesn't play that position at club level, you risk the transition. On the other hand, if England centre-half... Well, I watched Big Paul McGrath do it 
week in, week out. Play centre-half, play midfield, play centre-half. Did you tell me Paul McGraw was the best centre-half you ever played with as well? He was up there with one of the best, yeah. Isn't he an absolute monster? Yeah, he's a monster, but you see him in midfield? He was an unbelievably gifted player, Paul, that could could see things and do things. Very few touches. Very few. I defer. Anyway. I, I, you, you see more of him. I, I, I didn't think he was an extremely skillful midfielder. Maybe in the English game, the way it was at the time. I mean, he was a phenomenal player and a great holding midfielder. I wouldn't necessarily... You never see him... I, I, against England at Wembley when he played against Brian Robson. I didn't. Yeah. Sorry, I, oh, I was okay. I was a child at the time. I was in the game. And, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm being I'm being biased. Go on. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, a on, great defender on Gerrard. Cass has, has, has explained that theory to me before, and I think it has a lot of merit. The one thing I would say, but, there's a but uh, coming. No, up. no, there's yeah. not a but. I mean, he, I think he's I think he's right. But there's the but. <laughs> Gerrard has got. He's coped better with ageing as a midfielder than I thought he would. Mm-hmm. And this season for Liverpool, last, last year to an extent, he's much calmer, he's much, much more composed. He's not trying to be a sort of a shadow of the old Steven Gerrard. He's, he's become a different sort of player. And I think he, at the moment he still has a lot to offer in midfield for both club and country. Looking at qualification, obviously, Welbeck picked up, a, I thought, a stupid booking, a really stupid booking. It didn't matter that it was fair or unfair, but obviously now he's suspended and. Sturridge is injured and Rooney has a big gash on his head. So um, I guess it's, it'll be Ricky Lambert up front. It's Ukraine away. Johnny, the, the conventional wisdom is that as long as you don't lose in Ukraine, you're okay. Otherwise, Ukraine have a very, very easy run-in. England have, I believe, two home games left, but they're against Montenegro and against Poland. If you lose against Ukraine, you no longer control your destiny. Mm. and then things could get ugly. Nobody believes that's going to happen, right? I mean, this debate about whether England should go and play for a draw or try and win, you kind of talk about teams who are capable of controlling games or or have got options when you ask if they're going to make choices like that. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think England are good enough to go there thinking about anything other than, you know, playing as best as they possibly can and accepting that they're going to have to defend for quite a large period of that game and, and see what comes out of it I think nothing's guaranteed even after that result because I think as you allude to Ukraine are a great run of form, four, four wins in a row and they've got a sort of emerging team now you know the Shevchenko blocking Iris finally behind them but they don't look like a, an absolute banker to, to, to win their um, I think it's Poland they've got at home you wouldn't, you wouldn't absolutely um, Poland you know, at home, San Marino away. Poland nope. are basically yeah. eliminated. I mean, I think we can assume that they're going to. But there's run a local, the table, right? There's a local derby element to them playing Poland at home, and you know, Poland are decent enough. And I wouldn't. Well, I guess what I'm saying is, I wouldn't say Ukraine are any more of a banker to beat Poland at home than England are to beat Poland at Wembley. It's just a, you know, it's a mediocre group, and because new teams taking control of it. Even after this game on Tuesday, we're still going to have to look at the last two games. All that said, Ukraine are in the best position. England can't afford, obviously, to lose. And even a draw, I don't think really... If England do draw tomorrow, I would bet on playoffs rather than winning the group. I I sort of feel that maybe, again, going back to the Liverpool days when Roy Hodgson was at the club, that sometimes his approach to games would be very conservative. And I think he has no option, really, well, with look that at him tomorrow. At, look at him at Euro 2012. I mean, I, I thought that was one of the most horrible yeah. England teams I've seen in a long time. And everything was good because all the people followed the national team. Oh, look, ding-dong, the evil Capello is dead. Oh, and look, and, it, uh, and it worked. 
They worked against Ukraine in that tournament, but only by a fluke. I mean, mm. you know, they actually scored, didn't they? And they battered England. Well, he, he's he's in a bit of a no-win situation to, uh, on Tuesday because of unless the, he wins. Well, no, no, because of the the forward situation. You know, he's got very few people to choose from, and he's running out of numbers. So he's got every excuse to overload the midfield and try and scramble a result. Uh, and I suspect that that's what be the, will there'll be intention. It'll be probably Milner will come in one side and do his you know his his brilliant air and up and down job and a real workman like performance and grind something out of for England. And I suspect that's what we will be. Has Milner played much for no. City? Has no. he played no. all? No, he's on the bench. Has he, has he, has he come on? He's come on, yeah. It seemed like a, like an unnecessary gamble to give the first start of the season in a game like this to as good as Milner, as reliable as he can be. I think Johnny's right. Whatever happens, I'm not sure you can call the group. Ukraine-Poland is, is, a, is, is a rivalry. I think the Poles, the Poles aren't completely out of the equation yet. But the kind of telling thing is that, and, and I would have come on to Greg Dyke because I've seen the running order, but he sort of got criticised for, for not saying that England might win the World Cup in 2014 or, or the Euros in 2016 or whatever. We're debating whether England should go and defend against a Ukraine team that is not the best Ukraine team that has existed in the last four years. This is where England are. Do you know what I mean? Then there has to be a realisation of England's place in the world. On that transition point, oh, let's move on. Magnificent. To, to Dyke. For people who don't know, Greg Dyke is a former television executive. Why do all these like FA types... Why are so many of them TV guys? Because Bark is a TV guy, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Crozier's advertising, same difference. Davis. Yes. Yeah. They are, yeah. You had those guys, then you had what? A mathematician? A. Palios uh, was an accountant, wasn't he? Ugh, an accountant? I mean, the themes are TV and money, aren't they? Yeah. What is it? Does Bernstein have a day job, or was he always a football guy? He was, a, sure he was a businessman, wasn't he? He was an entrepreneur of some sort, I think. I digress. But, but Dyke has a long history in football and television. And if you go back, you will find certain things. I was having a conversation with our boss, uh, Tony Evans, who was obviously correct. You know, th- this is somebody who was involved way back in the 1980s and potentially creating a breakaway league of 10 teams who's kind of been there all along, obviously involved um, uh, with, with Brentford uh, later in his career, not as somebody bankrolling the club, but as a was he honorary chairman, I think he was. Hmm. My early impression, Johnny, and I, I want to give you first crack at this because you wrote about it at the weekend, is that hmm. He reminds me a little bit of Michel Platini in the sense that he's like a big picture, big ideas, mm. populist man. But sometimes he seems to speak without thinking and certainly speak without working out the details. This is his management style. And if you, if you look at what he did at the BBC, it was quite similar where, you know, he, he made kind of big picture statements and, and sort of tried to stir up the organization and then, you know, sort of sat back and, 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 and looked for, for change. And this one style, he's very sort of, charismatic and tells it as it is no nonsense when he when he's speaking and i have to say i was at a speech and i actually quite enjoyed just the act of listening to him because he's a man you can listen to but he plainly hasn't scrutinized any kind of detail and and i think it's going to come down to how serious like all these fa things how serious is this is this a pr exercise is this a surface Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. So look at things. Or, or is this, you know, is this, this going to be a really serious attempt? And is this commission that he holds, is it going to be... You know, is it going to be all sort of Hollywood with Beckham arriving at Wembley in a helicopter, or is it going to be a proper attempt to speak to people in the game and and look at some of the problems? And I I suspect very very quickly, if not already, he will know that when it comes to youth development, there's very little the FA can do because that's in the gift of the clubs. So he has to look at doing other things. And the things he's talked about already, things like work permits and the loan system, quotas are a non-starter. I mean, they're all things around the margins. If they want to do something fundamental, then, you know, it's got to start what the FA can actually do, which would be coaching and facilities. But this comes back to what the pointless exercise is. When you start tackling things like those, which is what England need to do, you're not talking about a 2022 World Cup. You're talking about, you know, 2030 or something. And you're also not talking about something glamorous and eye-catching and initially you're talking about sort of hard work at the grassroots which you know he'll be long gone before anyone gets any credit for so it, it, it's going to be interesting and I'm trying not to be cynical in advance. Let's try not to be cynical here and I do mean this and one of the things that strikes me is when people are talking about winning the World Cups and things like that I, I'd want to throw out is success for the England men's national team mm. should that be the benchmark mm. on which the FA is judged? It takes a lot of luck to actually win things. It's a short tournament. Things can go wrong and things can go right. And the best team often doesn't actually win. Maybe the focus shouldn't be on success for the England team. Maybe the focus should be either on having more coaches, which will help you produce more players in the long run, even if it does mean, as Johnny says, you're not going to get the credit. Or maybe, and, and this is what makes me a bit uneasy, is that people also keep bringing up this argument about the playing field. But the, the, the point being is, is the FA's remit football for everybody? But if that's the case, then that means doing stuff which isn't necessary for the national game because that means doing stuff for women's football. It means doing stuff for, 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 for kids and even adults who want to play football and who will never play for England. You know, people who are, who are differently abled and people who are too fat or too thin or too stupid to ever be professional footballers. Surely they go hand in hand. I mean, is, is there a nation that's brilliant at the national team level but doesn't look at football for all, you know, doesn't have any kind of... Gadget. I, w- I, I w- might be. I, I would argue, that, I would argue that, that there are actually plenty. I mean, I spent a lot of time on this in, in writing my book, but I actually, I there's plenty of examples of this. Um, Portugal is actually one, I think, great example of it, where the facilities at grassroots level in Portugal okay. really are not good. But what they do have is they have tremendous facilities for, for sky, scouting and identifying mm-hmm. players, and that's why they 
produce a, a, a great number of players. There's a lot of points made from last week, and there's no real one way of being successful. I think history has taught us many things, that there are many styles and many types of, like you touched on, luck. You have penalty shootouts in major competitions that, you know, determine the winner. A bad decision. Yeah, a right? bad decision, a wonder goal, which comes yeah. out of nowhere. That's not all to do with just coaching. You know, and you see it in Champions League football as well. I th- I've always felt that coaches' jobs are basically there to teach people how to play football at certain levels. And I mean that technically. I don't mean all the the style and winning games and organisation. That should come way much further down the line. You mean how do you pass the ball? How do yeah, you kick absolutely. the ball? How do you run with now, the ball? a lot of people and a lot of ex-players will say this to me. Say, oh, I've done a coaching course and we're doing side foot passing. Oh, it's so boring. But that's where it all starts where Jack Cholton used to do a thing when he see players doing all juggling up and eddying up and keeping up 50 different ways and keeping up on their backside and whatever he'd say can you do this one he'd put his hand on the ball and pass it five yards and we'd all look and laugh because it was like well it's the easiest thing in the world he said not many people can do that that must have been the only time anyone in a Jack Cholton <laughs> yeah. passed the ball five, <laughs> five yards <laughs> but what I was trying to what I'm trying, look when I first got to France I started playing football tennis at 31 I'm playing football tennis and I realised within months why so many foreign players were so good with their feet and their heads in certain situations. Because I got really good at it. I used to play every day. And people come and watch me play when I was 31 and said, your touch is bloody improved. I said, my touch, I feel confident. That's Tony Testarino giving you an insight into no, the tough life of a professional no, footballer but, in France. <laughs> but honestly, and honestly, and I tell you the guy's house I played regularly and I used to play against him was Platini. I used to play in Cassis at his house with Bruno Germain. I'm sure you, most of you might remember him, who, who played for Paris Saint-Germain and Marseille, won the Champions League. He would be my partner, and he was fantastic at head tennis. And I was rubbish. So I turn up, and I'm rubbish alongside him, and I'm playing. And Who he, was Platini's partner, or did he just need to play by himself? He was Marcel Dib. Do you remember the lad Marcel Dib? Who was yeah, involved was, in Mar- yeah, yeah. Marseille, Monaco. We used to play against each other. And uh, I can remember Platini, who was probably six, seven years older than me, and retired... He was doing things that I couldn't do. He's over the net, leaping and following it. And you'd think, that's how he got so many great goals. Mm. And do you know the guy that was on the sidelines who used to come on and play and everything? Papin. Jean-Pierre Papin used to be on the sideline. Never come, to, to come in. And he was a guy that would get goals that I'd never seen before. And so I go back to it. It's all based around technique. That's what coaches' jobs are for me. But Tony's absolutely right. And I think the problem with, with what Dyke said, I agree, I agree with Johnny. I thought it was quite a good speech. I thought he, mm. he raised a lot of issues. And I think the, the realism that he introduced to it was important. I think we England, as I said earlier, does need to realise where it stands in the world. And what is not the case that England should go into every World Cup thinking, oh, we can win this. That's, that's the worst thing England can do. But the, the issue is that what Dyke said, what, what Dan Ashworth's trying to do at the FA, there seems to be so many different competing agendas. Mm. Ashworth's spoken about trying to get a football culture with overlapping fullbacks where everyone's com- comfortable on the ball, with rotating midfielders, with all this, this stuff. And that's fine, but that's, that's, that's not just a change of, mm. of getting you know, 3,000 more coaches. But that's you've got to mass- have the best personnel, Rory, well, for the run to do the job that but, you see. But, 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 but it's, it's a massive cultural shift mm. as well, because we do, you, it, people say, oh, you know, we need, we, parents at, you know, at, at youth level need to realise that it's not about winning, it's about the performance. Rubbish, it is about winning, but winning in the right way. You can't okay. teach kids that it's, not, it's okay to lose. Right. But also, just one more point, Deb, it's about crowds at football matches. Yeah. I remember, I've been to 
countless games where you hear the crowd sort of getting a bit iffy does the manager's bringing James Milner on and not a striker I remember watching Liverpool play at Arsenal with, four, with Heskey, Owen, Fowler and Titi Kamara on the pitch and that Julier brought all four of them on because that was how they were 1-0 down I think that was how he was going to get well, a goal and I've never, stuff like that you guys all say he's a genius I've never seen a team look so so toothless just there mm. were loads of strikers but no one to su- supply them it, okay. we need a cultural shift in, what, in how we understand football I think you guys are short selling the fans a little bit I think a lot of that is already it, it, it's, it's changing changed already, but I, I want to go back to this, Johnny, because um, you live in Liverpool, so yeah. you live in the in the home of spiritual home of of football. And I go back to this the, the, these choices, right? So Cass is talking about coaches. We all know the stat about the number yeah. of of, of A licensed yeah. coaches in, it's in a false England, stat. blah blah blah, what, what, false real whatever, right? There still is a finite amount of money there, and there is a choice between. Hiring a hundred coaches, or and, and giving them a fair living wage for the rest of their lives, and, and training them obviously, and building five playing fields. And there is a choice about how you use those coaches. Would you get those qualified coaches to go and teach girls? Because that's not important. Because the England women's team don't generate any money, right? And I, I kind of almost feel like these decisions. I don't even think the FA should be made. I think it should be political decisions. And I think we sort of muddy the the, the argument a little bit. When we put this on the FA, because they cannot be all things to all people. Since they get all these advantages and benefits from the government, I think it should be the government that decides we're going to have a nation of fit people where everybody, you know, every single person in the country is within 20 minutes of a 4G pitch and they can play whenever they like uh, for, 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 for close to free and we'll benefit from this. Or we will try to develop our elites and give them the best coaching and that'll inspire people that way. There is a trade off there. Facilities are one thing. The other thing that I think that no one seems to be addressing is, is how much it costs to play football now. Mm. It costs an absolute fortune. If yeah. you've got two, two or three kids, boys and girls, that you want to mm. play for a team, that, that's, that, that's a, sub, a substantial drain on a, on a yeah. family's resources if they're, if they're not yeah, recognising money. You take just boots, nearly 200 quid for a decent pair yeah. of boots. But then you have, to pay for for, kids. you have to pay to play for teams. It's all very well, the FA. And this is what Red Dyke's speech felt like a bit. Mm. They come in with these big ideas, these big pictures, but there is no desire or intent behind them to actually sort anything out. And that I, I think that's the impression I get with the FA. It's just an organisation totally mired in stasis. Um, the one other sort of populist thing that he came up with was when he talked about sort of the, the business of the loans and quotas and stuff like that. I think protectionism in football is very, very bad. I think it gives you a huge sort of illusion of what's going on. Post-Bosman, if you look at what happened in Germany, what happened in Spain, and what happened in Italy. At the time, they all had roughly the same number. And these are all countries that have won things. Um, they all had roughly the same percentage of foreigners as England did. And over time, that percentage then went down. They did a better job of producing their own players, not because anybody passed any quotas. Equally, when there was a high percentage of foreigners in, in this country, as there has been, between 2002 and 2006, that was the most successful period, or the second most successful period statistically for any England team ever, and that was with all the foreigners here. And it's simply because there's a lot of foreigners, it means you're playing, presumably, against the best possible players that you're facing for an England player. So, And there is one other knock-on effect, um, which nobody's been able to explain to me. The champion, crowds in the championship and in League One are as high as they've been since the late 60s when there was no satellite television and no PlayStation and no, no internet, seats. nothing to do. 
no seats either. Yes, good point. I think part of the reason is because there's very many very good English players who can't play in the Premier League because of the foreigners, so they move down to the championship. And so the championship is a fantastic league that everybody wants to watch, and then that has a knock-on effect on League One. I, I, don't, I don't think the quality's there, not in depth. I think there are good players in the championship in League One and some in League Two, but it's not there in depth. There's a few that should come up, and the reason they don't is I'm not suggesting clubs, it's there, but I'm saying is is if clubs, you had the dyke system, those guys would be sitting yeah, on the bench in the Premier League yeah, would get worse, and the yeah. championship in League One would be, would be I, worse. I, I don't see how we can look at it and, th- and feel that bringing in better players is going to hinder our league. I don't get that. If you're playing with the very best and you're training with the very best, yeah, you have to be get better. Okay. Right, you have I, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and give you the answer that uh, all these protectionists always come up with. Well, Cass, I can understand it if you're bringing in Bergkamp or Zola or Cantona, but it's all those rubbish cheap imports. But why, why do clubs go for cheap imports? Mm, because they, maybe because signing some guy nobody's ever heard of from Ipswich costs you £10 million. Exactly. So the clubs, and he can't play football because he's never had proper coaching. But this is the problem. The, cl- the clubs are thinking purely about themselves, which I suppose is their, is their right. If, they, if the clubs are serious, the FA is serious about about wanting to get more English talent into the top flight, make it economically viable. It's a, football is, a, is an economy. You... you and England is basically pricing itself out of the market. I mean, uh, there's a piece with Ray Wilkins in the paper today talking about Josh McCracken. Josh wasn't good enough to get into the Chelsea eleven, that team. And he's not good enough to get into the England first team. People were using him to say, this kid is that good, he should be there. He wasn't making it. And not only just one manager, I think he had three at Chelsea. Never decided Swansea. to go with it. Didn't make it at Swansea. Yeah, he didn't so, do well at Swansea. Or, so or, I find that frustrating because I, I think it's an easy way out. I really do. My final point would be, we'll have to ask what is the English game. You know, the, the, the Premier League, like it or not, is as much the English game as the England national team, if not more. And, you know, ask the fans. Do the fans want to not see great foreign players playing for their clubs? Of course they don't. We've just had a transfer window where the clubs that didn't spend are the ones that that were being criticised and the the, the clubs that did and brought in some great foreign players, you know, had, had celebrating supporters. So I think we've gone past the stage where there's any appetite for protectionism. All right, time now for some quick hits. Cass, Everton signed James McCarthy to form a dream partnership with Ross Barkley. They had Gareth Barry's old head to the midfield. They can now pair Lukaku and Delofeo uh, up front and uh, have Jelovic in reserve. And on top of everything else, they trick Manchester United into paying £20 million for Marwan Fellaini. Uh, they won the transfer window championship, didn't they? Uh, well, yeah, they had a player they could have let go in Fellaini for, for less, what, £4 million less a few weeks before. Um, I like their business, I've got to say. I, I thought they'd done really well. And um, I've been interested how James McCarthy does because he played very well for Wigan. He was poor for Ireland on Friday. But he's a good player and he's a, he's a player that I, I think Martinez will get the best out of. On the flip side, Manchester United's final 24 hours of the transfer window were absurdly horrifying with the Ander Herrera and Marwan Fellaini debacles. And on top of that, the rumours that Sir Alex is going to pick some nasty bones when his new autobiography comes out next month. Johnny, you need to defend your boy. And no, you can't just blame everything on Ed Woodward, uh, if only because nobody knows who the hell he is and what he looks like. Well, he looks a bit like Ian Hislop, if you're confused. But um, the, the, the defense of United's transfer window would be terrible deadline day. Bigger picture. Maybe not as bad as people think. The priorities were a left back and a, and a central midfielder. Um, they did get one central midfielder who... The manager very much believes in and um, we're only a few minutes away from getting Fabio Contreau on loan. 
On top of that, kept Wayne Rooney, um, which is going to be a big thing for them going forward. The, the overall the overall reason for the, the lack of signings, I suppose, is, is, is really just that the manager is going to try and assess the squad. They've got a really, really big squad. All of this is justifiable if in the next window there's a churn of players. He decides which ones he wants to get rid of and does business early. Rory made a face there when uh, you mentioned Fabio Contrao, and uh, I joined him in making that face. We mock United for spending £4 million more than necessary on Fellaini. But, hey, Rory, didn't City kind of do the same when they spent £4 million on Demichelis when they could have signed him on a free? I want to know, what's the problem? Was Manuel Pellegrini somehow unaware that they might be shorthanded at the back and that Demichelis might just be available? What City did with Demichelis was as bad as what United did with Fellaini, no question about that. And yeah, we mock United, but we don't well, yeah, mock City. I, I suppose the sums involved are bigger and maybe people didn't Still quite £4 million? Pounds? No, no, I agree. Maybe people didn't know that Atletico Madrid had signed Demichelis on a free this summer, I think about eight weeks before. I presume they had to get a special dispensation from FIFA to do that as well, City. I don't think so. I think because um, when you sign somebody on a free transfer, the, 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 the two transfers don't apply. Okay, quite why Pellegrini didn't work out that City might need another central defender and why he then tried to solve the problem by signing a terrible one, I'm not <laughs> sure. But it may be that he wanted to assess the squad and it was only with the injury to Nastasic that he decided that he had to do something. I think because we like Pellegrini and Moyes, we're all being exceedingly nice to them. But hey, it's the start of the season, we have plenty of time to get nasty. Arsenal sit on their hands all summer, but then they deliver Mesut Ozil on the final day of the transfer window. Cass, no matter the disruption this may cause, surely they are better with Ozil than without him, right? Top four side now, yes? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. When you have 120 million odd in cash reserves, <laughs> you know, it's... Yeah, but Gab, I'm, he's been put alongside Dennis Bergkamp over, what, a decade in English football was superb for Arsenal. I'm not quite sure. I've seen him a lot at Madrid. I think he has his moments. He's, he's a talented guy. He's got good, you know, he's quick, but not blisteringly quick. He's technically good. He's in a great side of, of Real Madrid with some tremendous players around him. Um, I just don't know if the transition going to Arsenal and the expectation that he's going to suddenly turn them into a, a, a top four team and, and, and maybe even a bit higher. I always felt with Uzil there was something always just slightly missing with him. Well, they were a top four team last year, of course. And last 16 games, Arsenal, 13 wins, two draws, one defeat. Not so bad. Christian Eriksen is the final signing for Tottenham's huge summer transfer season, which saw them end up with a positive net spend. Brilliant. Um, Johnny? Opinion on this guy is split. I'm guessing, though, that you're a fan of Mr. Erickson. I like him. Um, <laughs> How did I know that? He really wowed me uh, when, I, when I saw him in the flesh against England in Copenhagen a couple of years ago. I really like him, and I think it was the right time for him to leave Holland because he maybe was starting to stagnate a little bit at Ajax. But I also like Lamella, um, and I'm not quite sure. And I also like Dembele, so I'm not quite sure who's going to play for Spurs. And looking at Spurs overall, I just wonder if, have they just done things slightly unbalancedly? They only brought in Roberto Soldado in terms of strikers, and they did pay a lot, what seemed to be slightly overpaying for him at £26 million. And that's about it, you know, apart from a, a sort of old Jermaine Defoe and, and a renegade Adebayor. So they've got all these great players to play behind the striker, but they've only got one, and I'm not sure if he's going to, you know, I'm not sure Soldado alone would, would, would spear you into the top four. All right, so a ridiculously wealthy Saudi prince buys half of Sheffield United for a single pound and pledges to invest in the Blades. Rory, you and I were talking about something uh, recently, which we can't go into right now, but you're sort of from that part of the world. Is this a good idea for 
the resurrection of Yorkshire football? Well, I mean, United are a great club, just like Wednesday are a great club. It's Sheffield's a proper football city. It, it would be brilliant if it if it was to work out, if, if Prince Abdullah could, could kind of finance them to back to the Premier League to become a force. I think that would make the entirety of English football better to have a strong Sheffield team, hopefully two. I think all teams in the Premier League should be from Yorkshire. Um, my only query is there was a great interview with Nick Harris for the Mail and they did a brilliant interview with him. Am I right thinking you can go to you can read you can go to Nick Harris's oh, yeah, personal honest, website and read it that way? The excellent sporting intelligence dot exactly. Yeah, don't give the mail your money. Yeah, the the, the, the query would be you kind of think well are you buying this for the right reasons? We've seen a lot of Middle Eastern investments gone wrong. I've, I interviewed Fawaz Al Hasawi, who's the um, the guy who owns Forest. And they were in kind of where we did that interview was in kind of a similar sort of setting to where Prince Abdullah did his interview. I'm not sure that many Forest fans would be that sold on Al Hasawi. I'm just a little bit suspicious of, of his motives. But hope, yeah, hopefully for Sheffield United it'll be be the, the, the beginning of the beginning because they are a great club, Sheffield United. He is somebody who's I think realizes he's very fortunate to be where he is and has has worked at it and, and has done achieved things in his life. Uh, and now, Gav, one for you. Next to my brilliant Columbia spread in the paper today is your column about Miroslav Klose. Why should I stop reading about Columbia and start reading about Miroslav, Miroslav Klose? Because Miroslav Klose uh, scored his 68th international goal against Austria, meaning that he's equaled Gerd Muller's record. And since they play the Pharaohs on Tuesday night, it's a fair bet that he may well break that record. Um, the incredible thing about this, and I was, uh, I was actually recently uh, talking about Klose uh, with a former international striker, Tony Cascarino, actually, is just basically just talking about the, this guy's eye for goal, his longevity, and the fact that, you know, he's, he's, he's 35 years old. And he's still going strong at club level after he had two years where he scored four league goals in total for Bayern. And so they just kind of turfed him out, ends up at Lazio, and he just keeps scoring for Germany. And the other interesting thing is, despite all this, all this sucking up, we do the German model, the Germans, that's so cool. Germany can't produce any freaking strikers, which is why Miro Klose is still starting up front, because the only other striker they have is Mario Gomez, and now they've, uh, they've called up Max Kruse, who's 25 years old, and is, I think this is only his second cap, and uh, he's really not that good either. So, you know, put that in your German suck-up system and pipe and smoke it. That's all we've got time for right now. But remember, you can catch Ahead of the Game, Top Analysis, and all the goals now. If you subscribe to The Times, go do it. Go do it right now. In fact, don't uh, listen to the end of my outro because, remember, we want to hear from you. You can write to us, as so many of you do every single week, at gamepodcast at thetimes.co.uk. We also love it when you reach out to us on Twitter. Rory's on Twitter. Johnny, what's your uh, your Twitter handle? Jay Northcroft. Jay Northcroft. There you go. Feel free to interact with one of the many fake Cascarinos out there on Twitter. Just want to say thank you to everybody who joined me this week. Uh, Rory K. Smith, Tony Cascarino, Johnny Northcroft, and, uh, of course, uh, our producers done such a fine job stepping in for the extremely unreliable Chris Skinner this week. Uh, It's Mr. Dan Garlic. Till next time, bye-bye. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.